Hello and welcome back to Very British Futures, the podcast taking a fond and sometimes critical look back at British science fiction television. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Rokrines and Kevin Hiley to talk about one of the BBC's major forays into new science fiction in the 80s, The Tripods, based on the novels of John Christopher. As ever, I should say that we'll be bringing up spoilers as we discuss its two seasons. The series has been released on DVD twice, the first in 2001 by Second Sight, and a 2009 complete series release by BBC Worldwide. Andrew Rokrines is a writer and academic, and I'm welcoming back Kevin Hiley, with whom I was talking about Knights of God in a previous episode. He's a video editor and graphic designer who's worked for numerous UK TV channels over the years. And uh, together with Andrew and other friends, we've made quite, quite a few short films together, both fictions and documentaries. The Tripods was transmitted on BBC One early Saturday evenings between 1984 and 1985. There were two seasons, adapting the first two books in the trilogy, The White Mountains and The City of Gold and Lead, making a total of 25 episodes. The books were adapted by Christopher Penfold and Alec Rowe, directed by Christopher Barry, Graham Feekston and Bob Blagden and produced by Richard Bates. Now, I'll tell you to Andrew, how would you describe the tripods to a newcomer? Okay, uh, thank you very much for having me on your uh, podcast, Gareth. It's uh, really good to be here and uh, nice to be able to contribute a few thoughts on these. Um, Cheers. How would I describe the tripods to a newcomer? Um, I would say that it's very much a, not so much a homage, but it's very similar in initially in tone and appearance, something like War of the Worlds. I mean, superficially, you could make that argument. Uh, however, the stories and the characters are really quite different uh, from that. It's got a kind of different premise. For example, it's not an actual invasion. It's more to, uh, covering what's happened after the, the tripods appeared, a good, good few decades later, I would say. So we're really talking about the kind of um, post-invasion uh, human recovery period uh, in which society has regressed considerably. It's regressed uh, to a, in terms of um, not just technology, but also many, many of the sort of social attitudes of the people. Um, but in that, you get to see like almost a kind of reawakening of knowledge, because part of the uh, appeal, I think, to uh, uh, to Will, who is uh, one of the um, one of the guys, that sort of decides to. Uh, uh, sort of reject the society that the tripod has created for humanity uh, is that human ingenuity has been largely eradicated uh, from the population. So curiosity, intrigue, the ability to ask why and to find out answers to that question uh, in a way which is designed to uh, advance humanity. Those kind of abilities have been largely uh, wiped out by the tripods. So the story is really about recreating and recapturing that sense of human ingenuity, uh, which has, uh, yeah, which has kind of been lost. And, and I think that that is largely one of the motivations of at least Will and one of the other characters, support characters, I would say, uh, one called uh, Jean-Paul or Beanpole uh, for short or long, 
uh, a kind of desire to try and recapture the, the right and the ability of humanity to innovate and to think again. In fact, I think on one of the episodes, um, Henry uh, asks, um, what gives them the right uh, for the tripods to be here? And I think it's will uh, that applies with something on the lines of they have no right. And I think that's really quite important. I think it is about uh, humanity trying to refine its position in their own world and ultimately to try and take the fight to the tripods themselves, to, to the masters themselves, as, as they are later on uh, referred to, as, well, as we find out in series two. Uh, but yeah, that's basically how I, I would attempt to begin describing the tripods uh, to someone who has no knowledge or no uh, sort of understanding of it, is to sort of go beyond that superficial assumption that it's basically War of the Worlds uh, and to, to look deeper into some of the more nuanced stories, uh, potentially about human nature, human ingenuity and the need uh, to be free. That's interesting stuff. Have you got anything you'd like to add to that, Kevin? Um... Uh, I kind of got some rebuttals actually, but I'm uh, I, I'll skip over them for well. now because we're likely to get more into uh, the nitty gritty of the plot later on. But it, uh, Andrew's absolutely right in that yes, uh, despite superficial appearances, if someone's seen a trailer or something, it is nothing like War of the Worlds beyond there being three-legged machines trampling about the place. Um, pretty much everything else about the story is. Um, it's a it's a hero's journey. It's an epic quest. Um, there's probably more in the mold of something like Lord of the Rings, actually, than uh, it is in something like War of the Worlds. Uh, yes, it's uh, very much uh, freedom. Is it's 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 the main uh, subtext of the whole piece. I would say both touch on something that strikes me about the tripods. It's it's always suffered a bit from well because it's called the tripods and the it got a radio times cover for episode one with a great big tripod looming over us is that i think quite a lot of people went in assuming it was going to be a series about fighting tripods and that, that it was <laughs> going to be a more conventional kind of sci-fi monster fighting kind of a show when in fact, for a lot of it, the tripods are, are just a kind of background. They're a, they're an ominous threat. Yeah. Well, it's, the it's the about tripods. the human characters, isn't it? It's about the people. It's not about the tripods as such. But uh, yeah, it's about why they do what they do, and uh, why the people do what they do, and how they are sort of motivated uh, in the stories that they wanted to tell. Sorry, Kevin, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say the tripods do loom over them, but most of the time figuratively rather than literally. <laughs> I mean, although we do get a chance to, do, uh, to, to actually loom over them um, when the budget allows. Uh, it's, uh, but yes, I mean, the thing about the society that Will is in in um, 2089, uh, I guess I believe that's when it's set, is it? Yes. Yeah, that it's, it's, it's a state of perfect stagnancy. Uh, the world you are born into will be identical to the world you die in. Uh, nobody changes status, nothing changes state. The tripods have taken what humanity was before and left them almost like a theme park. They're like a <laughs> caricature of human um, tradition and ritual. It's it's just, it, you know, all, all the pretty old-fashioned costumes, the quaint customs, the fates and festivals, you know, the, the feasting days, and everything is like, yeah, out of some sort of um, rural idyllic scene. But, of course, it's, it's more of an I, I, idyllic nightmare in many ways because it is stagnant, because there's no change. 
I found that uh, when I was watching it, I found the um, one of the uh, uh, brief stories in the first season in which they come across a sort of a landed gentry type manor house, uh, and mm-hmm. the lord of the manor has got servants. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, those servants, how do they get selected? How do they get born into that role? What do they get? What's their pay? Why are they content to be in that position? Uh, it's likely because that the cap, uh, which the tripod is used to control people, sort of removes the desire or the question of why am I doing this? Why don't I go and do something else? I this think it's certainly, I, I think you're right. I think it certainly takes away the aspiration to be anything more. You know, there's no interest in self-betterment in this society. But also, I mean, I think the cap is more subtle than that. I mean, it's clearly not just some crude limiter, you know, like Gan in Blake's Heaven. It's not just something mm. that stops people being bad because, you know, there is still a fair amount of uh, disreputable human behaviour on display. What I think the cap is more about is it it programmes people into a p- particular status. Say, as we see in the show, immediately after you are capped, you, 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 you're considered an adult. You enter a profession. Um, like like mm. Will's friend Jack, he become he becomes uh, you know um, a, a woodcutter, uh, and from that point on, Jack is a woodcutter. He has he will never be anything else. He has no interest in being anything else. That is his entire mold set for him. And mm-hmm. I think the cap has a lot to do with that. So you'll get people who were sailors or butchers or farmers or whatever, and that is it. That, that once they're capped, they're set into their social role. It's 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 an unchanging state for them. Yeah, I think it's always it is quite a, an adolescent fear that that people have that mm. that uh, the original books tap into. I can remember when I was young having this kind of slight fear that when I grew up I'd kind of lose interest in. Would you believe it? All things things uh, all things like science fiction and uh, and oh, uh, and toys and, and other stuff, of course. The truth is, in fact, uh, quite, quite the alternative. If you see my shelves, so I think there is that kind of fear that kind of growing up involves losing something of yourself rather than gaining something. One rather curiosity, though, is the, the process of education. Like, if given the society is structured in a way which is uh, basically going to sort of allocate a role as long as you're capped, then what is the purpose in going to school? I would say it's probably. Uh, just something that you do it's part of the tradition and it's also uh, it's just a way of giving the kids something to do i guess in those years before they get capped but what is the purpose of that education well i mean we only see it in england we don't know if everywhere bothers mm. with with any form of early education i mean it also just could be that it's useful to any society even theirs to have some sort of basic literacy or numeracy just mm. to keep things ticking over, you know. I mean, obviously, the, the tripods aren't—they're not, not as—they're not—they're not, they're not two-dimensionally cruel and callous. They've set the society up in a way that will keep itself sustaining and functioning. They, they, they're, mm. they're not. I mean, in the books, they are much nastier. Um, mm. They are a bit more mustache twirling in their villainy, but in uh, there, there's a method behind it all uh, in the TV show. In the TV show, would you say then that, that they are almost, tripods are almost motivated by a genuine sense of benevolence. They're there not to be an invader. They, they is... really want to help. Well, this was something I was going to, uh, what I was saying about a rebuttal at the beginning about what right do they have. And when we learn in season two from 
West 468 and from Coggy, uh, we might talk more deeply about later, about, about why the tripods are actually there, you actually start to think, well, actually, maybe humanity got what it deserved mm-hmm. um, because they came because humans had reached the cusp of becoming a spacefaring civilization, had the technology to do it, but they also were taking with them uh, an extremely violent nature and, and um, well, were clearly engaging in nuclear warfare and this terrified the uh, the space community and they initiated what i suppose you know in cold war terms you call they initiated a police action where the trions uh, decided to initiate uh, an intervention in mm-hmm. earth affairs to make it a stable and safe society stable and safe for at least uh, ostensibly the people of earth but also of course for the wider community of space who are clearly who are clearly getting scared that humans are going to turn into some sort of terrifying super predator mm-hmm. who might actually then start taking their warfare out to the, you know to other to other uh, to, to other worlds so um the trions come to basically yeah to um uh, to put right something which they fear is going to spin out of control and on on the face of it they might have been right what they do afterwards that's a very different question and what they plan to do to humanity is is really quite despicable um but um but their motivations in coming might have been in some ways uh somewhat benevolent but a sort of self-interested benevolence yeah that makes sense that does mm. uh, yeah that, that kind of addresses that point of course when uh, they said um about you know what right do they have that was very early on in the tribal before we mm. learn any of that mm. um so but it is interesting to know that the, the, the tripods in the tv series at the very least are not sort of motivated by conquest for the purpose of conquest. Uh, mm. there, there could be a sort of a greater benevolence under that. Although we didn't really get a full opportunity to explore that in the TV series because, of course, it only lasted two series rather than three. So it might have been a thing that may well have returned to had the third series actually been produced. But um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm assuming it might have ended in a similar way to the books. I mean, because at the end of the books... Uh, in the end of the last book, you have that the the, 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 the big conference where all the nations gather their uh, you know their, their, their big wigs to talk about what the future of humanity should be, and immediately all the old nationalisms resurface and people start joining up into sides and taking alliance taking up alliances and mm-hmm. drawing up their grievances against new national enemies and it's like all the old um, rivalries of humanity just resurface and you know be um the heroes sort of leave that conference mm. feeling a bit uh, a bit cynical about it all yeah. well as you said yeah. uh, the uh, the humanity hasn't been destroyed it's been basically put into a, p- a position it's, of hibernation so it takes away that dynamic yeah. and it all comes back out again it's been neutered that's what the cap does it puts it in a nice safe playpen where it can't cause anyone any harm and it's 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 kind of pretty to look at. Mm. It's you know mm. it's as I said it's like a theme park. Everything yes, is think, so yeah. pretty and rural, and it's you know it's the nice sort of place to... you'd like to go for a holiday. Yeah, like <laughs> and every every country is basically caricature of itself. England exactly. being very very English, and France being very French, and so on and so on. How did you first encounter the tripod? Did you watch it on its uh, original transmission? Uh, I did, although I was very young. Um, certainly. It's certainly something that stayed with me. I had images from it in my head throughout my, uh, you know, growing up. I mean, I never got, I didn't get to see it until ooh, 
some way into my teen years uh, when I got some copies off UK Gold. Because um, I, I didn't have UK Gold, but I had friends who did. And, you know, it would have been like that. But those UK Gold copies were... They were edited down so they could put adverts in. And um, mm-hmm. so each episode lost at least a minute or so of material. Oh. So I didn't, until the DVD releases, see the full unedited versions, you know, uh, at, since, yeah, being like six years old when it was first on television. And uh, how about yourself, Andrew? Uh, well, for me, I, I didn't watch it weekly when it was originally broadcast. Uh, however, I did see an episode or two at original broadcast. And it has created what I can only really describe as a sort of a false memory in my head. Because when, when, it, when it was originally on, I remember distinctly a scene of the Yorkshire countryside uh, with a sort of red fire in the background and four or five tripods walking across the moors. That does not happen in the series. Uh, and yet oh. I remember it vividly. Um, so I don't know where that one came from. However, <laughs> has to be summer wine, maybe? It is. Yeah, it was... Uh, Three old blokes falling down the hill in a tripod with a raging <laughs> fire in the background. Fast forward many, many years, I think to around 96, 97, uh, I was at, uh, oddly enough, I was at Kevin's house. Uh, we were there to record one of the uh, Doctor Who audio productions uh, and I uh, got chatting to his brother. He casually mentioned that the tripods existed as a program and I asked if I could watch an episode. I haven't seen it for years, so I was curious. Uh, and I ended up, as I remember, binge watching the whole lot, or as much as possible, between around two in the afternoon uh, onwards to around seven o'clock at night when we had to leave. And I think I ended up missing my recording for the reason I was there in the first place as well. Uh, so that sort of triggered the, an awakening, then watched the whole series in my own time and decided, yeah, I, I really quite like this. I mean, it's incredibly camp, uh, and it's incre- <laughs> but uh, it is really good fun, though. Uh, and it's very, very enjoyable. And when I say camp, I don't mean it as a criticism, merely as a description. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, it sort of really plays into that as well, especially in the second series, in a good, affectionate way. Uh, but I think, yeah, um, I've always had a soft spot for it since I saw it uh, in the mid-90s again. And it's never really gone away. Mm, I, I, mean, so I watched all of the first series, I remember. I remember feeling at the time getting a bit... Around the time of the chateau and the uh, the the wine growing and all, and all and all that, I was getting a bit fed up with it. But I sort of stuck mm. with it. And then for some reason, I didn't watch a lot of the second series at the time of the transmission. I've caught up with it since. Mm. I seem to remember didn't start watching it. But then there was all. I think they gave it an extra bit of publicity when we went into the city of golden lead, the the aliens' home. Sort of, they live in these enclosed domes for people who haven't seen it. Uh, I think there was a bit of a push because they created this rather magnificent model city, and mm. at the time it was fairly state of the art for for the for BBC special effects. So I tuned in for them. So I watched all the ones that were set in the alien city, and then for some reason I, I drifted away again, actually. Mm. And I, and uh, I only heard later on that it had. That was it. It, was, it wasn't going to be coming back for a, a third series. In a way, that's a shame. I'd love to have watched it the first time round and ended it on that cliffhanger and then discovered, oh, my, that's it. One thing I would add, uh, if I may, to anyone that's considering watching it um, is, is not to do that awful thing that we tend to do these days of binge-watching the series in one go. 
Uh, I don't think it really lends itself well to binge watching because uh, mm, if you try it, yeah. then it feels like it's uh, dragging or even treading water in a similar way to the, what The Walking Dead does. But if you watch it in a kind of episodic way, uh, you get around that problem and you're kind of able to sort of buy into it more. Whereas if you do try and binge watch it, it just becomes really difficult. I think that's a good point. I think it does ben- no, it does not reward watching it in a, mar- a marathon because uh, mm-hmm. there's a fair amount of, especially in the first season, of kind of oh, escape and avoiding capture mm-hmm. and escaping out of places. The, 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 on, in the first um, season, especially, I think I think the problem is the the source material maybe has enough for eight episodes, and of course mm. they've got thirteen to fill. And yeah, so they have to stretch out what might have been maybe one paragraph in the book into an entire episode. Um, so yes, as mm. every everyone will mention the winery. And it, as we said, yeah, especially in the first season, the, the, the episode at the winery is by far the slowest. Some interesting things in the episode, but but yeah, it is a it. That's when the series is at its absolute slowest. The chateau stuff. Yeah. Mm, some of it's. I mean, the joust is quite fun, and the contest is is, is quite fun. But yeah, some of the actuals, the love stuff with Eloise is is a bit of a snooze fest. It has to be said. <laughs> it's true. It doesn't really set. It's it's not their fault. <laughs> but I mean, they're they're both a bit insipid, really, the, 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 between the two of them. So it it doesn't uh, doesn't catch fire in the way because it, in a way it should because it's an interesting. And I was thinking about this, watching the Vineyard episode again, thinking this could have been made a lot more interesting if they'd given those girls a bit more personality, because mm-hmm. they are a bit sort of, we are symbolic French girls, sort of like, yeah. we, we come with the Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they'd given them a bit more personality and have a real, so it was a real wrench of, oh, do I carry on or do I settle down? Sort of like mm. in this safe place. It is rather unfortunate that um, the moment that three teenage boys turn up, the first thing the mother tries to do is marry her daughters off to them without <laughs> bothering to get them to know them first or anything like that. No, no. <laughs> Just straight in with uh, marriage. I suppose it, it ties in, and in, 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 again, in this sense, this is a society with very defined roles for everybody mm. so to, to, to fit into. Oh, really. there's no, yeah, there's no. Uh... There's no female emancipation in this world, which is an entirely patriarchal world by yeah, design is, in this case. Yeah, which uh, I suspect might have been a slight problem why it didn't get the audiences that it should have, because there's no good female Certainly, characters yes. in it, really. If it were made now, um, one of the main trio would have been... I don't know whether it would Henry. be... Probably Henry. It'd probably be a Henry. Henry. Mm. Probably, uh, yeah, I think Henry, yeah, they're the most obvious one. Sorry, Henry, to to be uh, <laughs> yes, to be su- su- substituted. Yes, uh, I I remember I ca- I had come across the books in my school library, so I sort of read them when I, when I, when I was at school. Uh, have either had either of you two read the books before it became a TV series? <laughs> Not at that age. Um, I mean, yeah. I read the books. I don't know. I was probably around about twelve-ish when I first. First got copies of them, and you know I, I enjoyed them. Um, mm, I think they I, are well written children's science fiction books. But, uh, to add, uh, no, I did not uh, read the books before watching it either. Uh, ah. But I do own copies of the books in the collection somewhere. 
<laughs> it's weird. Actually, funny, I've got a memory a memory of you buying the complete publishers a trilogy mm. when we were we were out filming somewhere and you found it in a shop. Yeah. I don't know if that's a I think so. I can't remember any of the other details about when or what we were filming or anything like that, but uh <laughs> I just remember vaguely stumbling across them and just, yeah, buying them. Um, I think the shocking thing about the uh, the novels is that how short they are. They they, mm. they really don't help stay there welcome. But yeah, yeah. yeah they're the definitely <laughs> they are they are sort of which is good. I think for for especially for young boys reading yes. books. I think uh, uh, a certain and John Christopher who wrote quite a few of these sort of junior science fiction books uh as as well as uh grown up ones like the the death of grass they they stand i think they stand up uh, pretty well i think mm-hmm. as, as adventures and in fact that ending that you talked about the ending of the pool of fire where it you know it's not just a kind of celebration and we all and everyone sort of poses and looks forward to the glorious future and the fact that we had all that kind of everything begins to fall apart as soon as the tripods has gone which uh I, that ending did actually stick with me that 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 that's a part of the book i really remember mm. more than the other parts well i think it was inevitable that society was going to fall to pieces at least that version of society was going to fall to pieces because it was essentially artificially created by the tripods so if you leave people back to their own devices, they'll want to rebuild their own society again. Uh, whether or not it will take a, have a massive um, sort of technological leap forward because uh, a lot of the knowledge is still out there, uh, just, they've just not had access to it, or if it's basically going to be re-picking up history again from a few hundred years ago and then redeveloping again through a whole kind of uh, sort of reindustrialization and all that, is unknowable. But uh, it's interesting... So they'll see that uh, yeah, once the people get the, the right to make their own civilization again, they will well, take, take it and destroy what was there before. If you had to guess at um, a sort of a time after the setting of the books or of the series, um, assuming you know the third season was made as planned, uh, <laughs> the thing is, you know, they're, they're having to rebuild, knowing there is a whole galaxy full of alien civilizations who don't like them very much <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty sure that will play on their minds it would the sort of new uh, new economy and new society will be targeted i think towards earth defense uh once yeah, they probably they'd be they'd be daft not to mm. i mean and, and, and one thing about I mean, this is the books of the series off the top of my head i think it might be the books but it is mentioned that um the masters are actually kind of scared of human martial ability and human weaponry they, 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 they don't take it lightly it's not like a hi your puny human bullets are nothing to me they're no they're actually quite worried about what humans are capable of mm. which is why they used um mm. uh, I, don't know if read, uh, I don't know if you've read when the tripods came which is like the prequel which is why they use such subversive methods in order to uh, to take over yeah think- that, that's the one I, I, i'm aware of it but i've never read the original prequel that, that's got a very bleak perspective as well actually i don't know if that's a, a common trait of john christopher but yeah i mean because uh, i remember like at the end of the book that you you've got human armies fighting each other one three one capped and nobody knows who decides which anymore they all you know they just know it's 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 all over you, you know mm-hmm. 
humanity is going to come crashing down that's when they go off to you know to form the three men and because uh it's yeah it's uh, the, 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 the the tripods just basically turn one half against the other half mm. so basically all those ruined cities are mostly just ruined by humans under tripod control or even just humans fighting for their freedom oh that, now that's interesting i i didn't really kind of, that didn't really connect with me uh, so is, that know, would have been yeah. Like Paris, for instance, which we see ruined in some very effective sequences in the show, you know, could well mm. have been destroyed by three humans who were destroying Paris, which was perceived to be controlled by the cat. Ah, that's a, that's an interesting that, that's, that's kind of detail. I think they could have done with putting into the uh, into the story. There's a, a lot of I, I see with the books it is i don't find there is a great deal to get into i mean the books do leave Mm -hmm. a lot lot to the imagination i think there is a Mm -hmm. lot of depth actually in the tv show it's unusual to Mm -hmm. say usually it's the other way around but actually in the case of the tripods i think the tv show does put an awful lot more work into background detail um i think you sometimes find that because when you start having to visualize something you yeah, you have to think about how it's going to work practically in a way that authors sometimes have the luxury of uh, hand waving the the details away. One little, and it's it's almost throwaway, but one little thing I really like. It's just at the start of season two when uh, Julius is um, explaining the history of the Free Men, and it becomes apparent they don't even know they've been conquered. They think the oh. tripods are AI, rogue AI that have taken over. They don't actually know there's aliens behind it. That's very true. I think that is one of the interesting points. There's that nice in the I think it's the last episode of season one where Will they they become trapped underneath that um, that tribe that fall the tripod yes. and and Will has and he says oh, I think I saw somebody in there. Uh, and the other two go, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> and I remember thinking that's a, that was a really thrilling moment. That's possibly my favourite episode, actually. I think it's a really it's gripping episode, that one. Very fateful, that. I think that Henry blowing up that tripod is what leads to the mayhem in the second season. You know, Because it becomes apparent the tripods know about the three men. They just don't care. They're not a mm. they're not important. They're just something for the black guards to, you know, to clean up from time to time, chase down a few subversives here and there. And then a tripod gets blown up. And I think that's mm. it. That sets all the wheels in motion for them eventually coming to incinerate the three men's camp and to, you know, to, to, to crack down on them. That's when they start turning up in the valley to fry people, you know, like as starts mm. happening in season two. So it's all Henry's fault. <laughs> Hope he's <laughs> Moving on to the heroes, I was, if uh, watching the series, what do you think of our our leads, really, uh, the our three young leads, or and then of course they're joined by Fritz in the foot in the. So any any thoughts on 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 Will, Will and uh, Beanpole and Henry? Well, I think um, with Will, I think yeah, he's basically motivated uh, partly by fear. In the first episode, fear of being capped, uh, being pole motivated by the desire not to lose his creativity, and Henry motivated by the uh, by the uh, need to just do something, because uh, Henry doesn't seem to be really, 
You could you could remove Henry from the story and it wouldn't lose a thing. Now that's very harsh to say, especially given that uh, that is very had, attributed, had attributed Henry to basically the destruction of a female at the end of season two. But at the beginning, all he seems to do is just tag along with Will because there's nothing else to do. Uh, it's either that or just stay in the village and cook eggs or something. Uh, as it goes on, though, he does pick, his, pick up his motivation and things like that. But I think uh, Will and Beanpole are, have, a, have a very strong motivation for why they do what they do and why they don't want to be cats. It's personal to them. It, you know, mm. it, it's something that they don't want to lose about themselves. And they, they think, think that the, uh, the cat will basically deprive them of who they are. So I think that's quite an interesting and rather point and strong motivation to basically to turn around and tell everybody that you know and care for as your family to go away. But of course, the argument uh, there is uh, once you've been capped, they're no longer your uh, friends or family. They belong to the tripods. So uh, they've already gone. That they're already, you know, they're already no longer who you think they were. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think as characters, I think they're really well motivated. And I think the actors did really well because I think this is one of the, um, you know, the sort of, one of the first roles that they had, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I think, awesome. I think they did rise to the performance very well. I think they conveyed the character as well as actors. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I like them. One yeah, the I, 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 think, I think John Shackley does a, a good job as yeah. Will, sort of nominal nominal hero. And I'm, a, and I'm also going to say that Kerry Seal is actually, uh, of the three, he is, I think he is the best actor. I think, I think he he's the... the most experienced at that point, isn't he? He's done a couple of series by this point, I think. And I think it does show, I think, uh, both, especially in the scenes when they're being interrogated uh, and towards the end of the first season. Yeah, he's, he's excellent there. And actually, Jim Baker, Jim Baker's pretty good. He kind of gets better. He's almost, it sounds a bit mean to say he's learning on the job. Uh, no, I have to agree. Um, it's it, it, he improves with time. At first, he does feel a bit like he's doing that young actor thing of he's sort of acting it off the script page rather than mm. sort of engaging with with what's going on around him, you know, as younger actors do. But no, later on, he's t- he's capable of turning a you know pretty hefty performance. Actually, he he, he gets very solid uh, with time. Mm. Uh, I think yeah, John Shackley is is the standout of the trio of the initial trio. Mm. Um, he's he's surprisingly good at times, actually. Um, um, well, that's the, it's, the lead. He sort of needs to be able to sort of dominate the, the oh, screen yeah. when it's required, especially when you're acting against a uh, a tripod or, or <laughs> a series two. When you're acting <laughs> well, against, goodness knows what mm. that monster is, you know, the, the masters. Uh, well, you know, it is it's difficult actually, yeah, to to because acting against what is an effect or is basically a big. A lump of bubble wrap stood next to you. <laughs> you, you do need to be able to act. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not actually that starry um, a, a series. Actually, I was look, looking through the cast list, I, and there's not actually that many sort of familiar faces turn up in uh, the tripods compared to some series. We have we've got uh, Jeremy Young and Pamela Salem turning up as the Count yes. and Countess. In the chateau, I think uh, a lot of long-time cult fans will recognise the voice of John Woodvine as the uh, Master West Four Six Eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, once we get inside the city, 
And not forgetting uh, Don Scott Martin as well in the first episode <laughs> as the teacher. That yes. is a, yes, that was a great pleasure. If you if you're a Who fan to see John Scott Martin, who, if you don't know, is one of the most experienced Dalek operators over the course of the series. So it's rather lovely to see him see his face for a change, and as 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 a school teacher, and he and he does that little part very well. He's very believable. Another Doctor Who actor comes to mind. Christopher Gard uh, played uh, Bellboy in uh, Greatest Show in the Galaxy. He plays oh. Cocky. Oh dear, and I didn't, I didn't recognise his voice actually when it comes through. When it comes through, uh, I've just noticed uh, I didn't really recognise it. But, uh, someone who would go on to be quite famous. We've got uh, Pam St. Clement, many years before EastEnders. Well, actually, not that long before EastEnders, mm. as Frau Frau Heinitz. Ah, yes, yes. It's just, um, that's a strange episode, is that one? <laughs> <laughs> Why? 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 Why do you? If find it's the it one says... I'm thinking of, this is this is the one with the blackguard Gertz and them having to be hotel waiters. And, yeah, yes. so it's, it's 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 it. That's the padding episode of season two, but it's the only padding episode of season two. Uh, thankfully, um, mm-hmm. it's it, it's not it's 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 not boring, but it is kind of oddly sitcom like for one episode. Mm, to in a I'm... hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people complain about the um, the circus subplot that comes in towards the end of season two but um i i didn't mind it so much i thought that was uh an, an interesting extra wrinkle i'm just remembering <laughs> in the circus subplots another doctor who actor bruce purchase you know, oh, the pirate yes. Captain. Yeah. oh yes another sort of colorful and sub- very very over the top again and and <laughs> it, it, it's difficult not to love every second. He, he's a great fun actor. He's great fun to watch. Is Bruce Purchase? Oh, we didn't, so, we didn't mention Fritz. As we like didn't talk sort of, about Fritz. As like the fourth uh, member of, of of the group. Of course. Really. Of course, yes, yeah. who steps in? Rob, Robin Hater, mm-hmm. and he is again. I think a, a credible performance. This is slightly more intense. Sort of uh, sort of. Hey, I'm. He's, he's almost like a professional. Resistance <laughs> yeah. Fritz could be my favourite character in in the show. Actually, uh, I mean, he is. Yeah, he's built up as a colossal pain in the neck for the first few episodes he's in, but then <laughs> you know, you know, he's he's what a short fused fanatical German with a low opinion of pretty much anyone who's not as devoted to the cause as he is, and that's <laughs> it. He's a fanatic through and through. Um, but once in once they're in the city. He is so much better at the whole, uh, you know, infiltration thing than Will is. Mm. Will just makes mistake after mistake, and, you know. But but Fritz is he's on mission all the time. Let let let's move into into the city, into those episodes set in the alien city, and consider the masters. Well, uh, the city is for those who haven't seen the tripods. That's when it actually becomes sci-fi. Mm, this is a mm. some this strange point. costume drama. Well, yeah. Up until this point, be, you could be mistaken for thinking that it was a historical. But <laughs> yeah, in the second series, it becomes a recognisable sci-fi. Sorry, uh, Kevin. Not just sci-fi, but some fairly high concept sci-fi is involved. Um, mm. I mean, it's I think... stuff it throws at you. Mm. Yes, yeah, suddenly I do like this because suddenly we're full filled with ideas and this thing about the aging of humans inside, which is a nice, disturbing uh, 
that'll touch that and they sort of willingly the old the old servant just kind of willingly goes off into the suicide booth sort of like at the end which is quite uh yeah that is quite disturbing i think the masters you know it's quite a challenge to do a three-legged alien than you know with without any of the benefits of cgi or anything mm. and i think they do a reasonable job on those costumes yeah, I have to agree. I mean, it's it's very difficult to do a non-humanoid alien, which is why, of course, you've got so shows like Star Trek, which their whole alien shtick is just putting wrinkles on a forehead. And <laughs> so, yeah, anyone who attempts to do something that is just simply not humanoid, not even not even slightly, uh, yeah, it deserves some credit. And mm. yeah, the masters that they work in some ways and not in others. I mean. They, they, they are a bit plasticky. They look like they might be covered in bubble wrap or something. Um, but mm. then you've got the addition of like the frontaxial projection to make it look like their veins glow, and, and that's actually quite impressive. Um, that's quite impressive. They, they, they have that slight thing that Daleks have that you can't quite imagine them operating machinery and doing <laughs> no. stuff like uh, doing anything detailed with circuitry. But at the same time, very aquatic. Uh, so, you know, maybe they're more capable of doing things underwater than they are lumbering about on, in, in, in the dry. Uh, who knows on that one? But um, mm-hmm. I think what, uh, regarding uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of three-legged form of the aliens, um, the eyes kind of interesting, but I find when I'm watching it, certainly when I did this time, the eye bugs me. Because it's it's got some sort of kaleidoscope patterning on it, and mm. I can imagine on old TVs that would have sent them crazy with dot crawl effect of making <laughs> it burst into weird color patterns. And I'm but I'm actually thinking, well, maybe that was the design decision. Maybe they wanted to invoke that effect on old TVs to make it look like the masters had like crazy psychedelic eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I think the key is John Woodvine, really. Mm. What could be a fairly awkward-looking alien prop is is transformed into a living being when he's added, and you know, all credit to him as an actor, I think for that. Mm. Uh, just to basically echo what Kevin said, really about the design of the masters, and they do really, really good. They do. Uh, you can be mistaken for thinking, yeah, they do look a bit plasticky, but it all comes together and it all works really well. And that is all, in, of course, the performance. Um, of them is yeah attributed to the voice acting i think which really does give it a sense of life and a sense of motivation and, and purpose really so yeah mm. pretty much just to echo what kevin was saying there best thing about yes the um is when we meet him is this actually give us some answers <laughs> you know we've got like <laughs> 16 17 episodes in or more here and um, yeah we're still lacking some basic answers uh so it's, it's nice when uh, west 468 um actually starts telling us some things um <laughs> but yeah it, it is one of the odd things about this series if you consider it this you know we're finally meeting the evil alien overlords that have made the lives of our heroes you know such hell all this time and He's actually kind of nice. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of a vuncular and he's understanding and, you know, he, he wants mm. to be Will's friend, essentially. Um, it's, it's an unusual power dynamic with West 468, but it, 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 it seems to make quite clear he's the exception, very much the mm. exception. Uh, a lot of the masters couldn't care less what happens. 
to their mm. to their human slaves. I mean, in 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 the books, it's more like um, the master treats him more like a cat or something, like like, like, mm. like strokes him and pets him and stuff. But but it's, so thankfully, it's not like that. But yeah, the, the, but um, that West would get creepy. That would get creepy. I think. Yeah, that would get very quickly. <laughs> but, yeah, he definitely treats him with with a, a certain level of respect. He uh, that most masters definitely don't seem to show. Mm, <laughs> to yeah, humans, we'll most of which they just see them as vermin or troublesome or just beasts mm. of burden. Speaking of things that might have gone a bit creepy, or whatever, I don't think we can visit the city without addressing the well, facilities. Well, Andrew, I'm, I'm looking over to, to, to you, Andrew. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the, 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 the leisure time? <laughs> um, um, right. the pink um, parrot, is it? <laughs> yeah, the 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 the, the, uh, the city certainly does look after its uh, human population, gives them a good social life. Uh, the venue, uh, Pink Power, is where people you know go down, hang out, and enjoy themselves. Uh, it's a part of human life which is uh, probably, although we only see it in a few countries, probably denied the rest of the population. I can't really mm. see uh, many nightclubs opening up in these sort of quaint <laughs> 17th century style villages. But here, uh, humanity has afforded an opportunity to almost have a lifestyle that you would recognise from the mid-1980s or the 90s or even today, uh, in which you can just go out and uh, have a drink and socialise. Well, I, I say have a drink, but no alcohol. <laughs> uh, alcohol is, you don't need alcohol to socialise. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting extra dimension, I think, to the way that that humanity is treated and the difference that humanity is treated uh, in the uh, city relative to the rest of the population of the planet. But as I said at the beginning, though, we've only seen a couple of countries, we've only seen England and France and a few others. We don't know. There may well be nightclubs around the around the around the world for human use, but I doubt it based on the evidence that we've got so far. Uh, yeah, so that, possibly. I would say that. Yeah, those were my uh, <laughs> few thoughts on the kind of social life within with the, for the people within the city. It's nice that the Tripods give us one. Well, <laughs> you, you, you give me an idea there, Andrew, because we've been saying earlier about how it's all a bit, uh, the whole world is a bit like a sort of quaint human theme park almost. And mm. this is an urban environment. This is a city. And so they go, I, I suppose they'd give the humans something stereotypical for an urban environment dweller and so maybe something like the pink parrot is their idea of what a human in an urban environment does mm. <laughs> what, what they frequent so maybe it is just like the little faint uh, fe- uh, and festivals going on outside it's just an urban equivalent could be <laughs> An extra dimension of the stereotypical human lifestyle. Yeah, so mm. maybe, so maybe that's, that, that's 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 what I'm suddenly thinking. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> it could be just a very eighties moment. It could also feel like in Paris with the fashion uh, there when we when we come across a few intruders and it's very eighties. Well, there again, though, I mean, I, I I've often wondered about those vagrants in Paris. Um, are they kind of like guard dogs, you know? I'm, I'm, I, have they been sort of drawn there through the capping to... They are vagrants, but are they there to basically just keep people out? Stop okay. people f- snooping around in the cities and perhaps finding something that might be considered dangerous or, you know? Mm. 
of, of destabilizing. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it, again, I can I can kind of imagine the cap driving some people to sort of disappear from their previous life and just wander into the cities and again adopt this weird kind of uh, sort of they don't like they don't like reject new romantics don't they <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, and just sort of this is this sort of parody of urban lifestyles and just wander around the city and attack anybody who comes into the city mm-hmm. just to keep people mm-hmm. away make people scared of them uh, so you know i could i could again see some sort of logic in that Mm. Again, though, it could be just it's the eighties. <laughs> well, but there is some logic to them keeping them out, uh, keeping people out of the cities as much as possible. We want to deprive them of uh, sort of physical displays of human achievement, certainly away from the libraries and the museums. Yes. Um, mm. you know, just keep them out of uh, out of forming ideas, basically. <laughs> just look at what they find in the short time they are in Paris. I mean, everything from cool. uh, glasses to. Uh, munitions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that moment with the machine gun is kind of shocking, actually. When he mm. opens fire with the gun and everything afterwards, they just fall silent because what can you say? I mean, if you'd never seen a gun before and you witnessed that, it must be mm. not forgetting the grenade. Terrifying. Well, yeah, well, yeah, mm. but yeah, keeping, <laughs> keeping what's left of yeah. humanity. I also imagine that humanity itself um, isn't about six or seven billion. I imagine oh, quite a lot no, lower. No. Than oh. It'll be uh, it'll be medieval levels by mm. this point. Oh, I imagine so. It does actually feel quite empty. This world, mm. so it's like especially when when they're traveling in the countryside, or indeed even in Paris, it doesn't. It feels like there's not that many people about most of the time. There's mm. probably a, there's probably not even a billion people on the whole planet by this point, given the way mm. everyone lives in little villages again. Mm. Yeah, but like it was in like the 16th century, like which that. is a very manageable number. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not mm. going to get any revolts with that. <laughs> and watching it again, I, I think for a while it was criticised for the effects. I think effects-wise, I think the aside from the city, which you've already mentioned, the tripods themselves, I think are well. What do you think? How, how do you feel the tripods are? Well, I, I, I've always been under the impression that at the time the effects were considered to be state of the art. Um, I mean, I, I mean, it's up to people to interpret how they feel they look now. I mean, but of the time, um, it's hard to imagine them without, say, a, a film-sized budget to achieve mm. anything really much better. Um, I, I, yeah. I don't know how much of the compositing work was done. I'm going to assume it was Quantel because the BBC did everything on Quantel mm. paint back then. Um, but it's hard to fault some of the compositing work with the tripod models. Some of them are absolutely gorgeous. There are lots of uh, some moments, certainly when they really seem to meld into the background. You know, they do look like a part of the the location. Um, I believe I watching the I watched the um, the cult of the tripods little program that uh, BBC Four made a few years ago, and they were explaining they were basically using the same computer technology that the the weather. Men were using yeah, that will be Quantel then yeah that's how they were, mm. how they were doing it I mean and it's interesting to, to 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 reflect that at the time Doctor Who was also using Quantel for its effects but it shows you the difference when they've got the time and the money on the tripods mm. 
to really get the effect right. Whereas on Doctor Who, I imagine they were having to do it in the morning and, mm. <laughs> you know, you've just <laughs> got to get done what you can in the time and money available to you, which would have been a, probably an awful lot less. I mean, because Tripods was a co-production with Australia, was it? I believe so, yes. It had Australian money, which is um, often and, the way, actually, with BBC productions there. And, yeah, given given the amount of just sets locations costumes cast size you know it shows that there was certainly money available for this show mm, yes because there's there's not a lot of standing sets they they keep moving the story keeps moving from location to location now i hear the i've heard the rumor my whole life and i don't know where it comes from or what the truthfulness of it is but in some areas of the press it was reported that the tripods had waste a load of money by building a full-size tripod. Now, obviously, they hadn't. It, yeah. it was just the legs. Uh, now, but, but, that, but that alone, if there's any truth to that rumor, that someone around somewhere thought they had built a full-size tripod, that shows you that the effects must have been really convincing. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think the opening episode where it appears in the village is a terrific introduction to them. And that it would look great. Yeah, that that opening is one of the best in any sci-fi, I think. For the first five minutes of any science fiction, that opening is is jaw-dropping. Because mm. it gives you so many questions. It says 2089 and the horse and cart rolls by. And <laughs> you just see that sort of almost 18th century-like scene and then the tripod comes in. That If that doesn't get people's attention, if a sci-fi fan's nothing <laughs> A word is worth a what, what, what do you think about the uh, the music, and Andrew? Uh, I thought the music was really good, uh, very much of its time as ever. But even so, uh, the music is really, really well. Certainly, the definitely the opening and closing themes. I think uh, so. The kind of things that make you want to watch, and make you want to mm. keep, and the soundtrack itself, I think, is quite eerie and captures a lot of the emotion and the sort of. Um, feel of the show and the scenes that they wanted to try and, you know, feel something. Any TV show is only really as good as how it makes the audience feel. And you make the audience feel through music. So, uh, and I think it really, really does kind of show the audience and show the viewer uh, what kind of emotion the writers and the producer and director and level uh, want them to feel. So I think, yeah. I think Ken, uh, yeah, Ken Freeman does an excellent uh, job. I only discovered later on that he had been responsible for programming the synthesizers on Jeff Wade's War of the Worlds. That's right. He has a, yes, he has a three-legged history. <laughs> that was, it always slightly amused me this like that somebody at the BBC was saying, "Well, we've got this show that's a, it's got these big tripods in it. Who can we get?" And yeah, you get this feeling that first of all they phoned Jeff Wayne. And then, and then they phoned <laughs> Ken Freeman. Well, Ken was known on the circuit, I think, as a as as you know as a major pioneer of, of the synth. And, you know, mm. I, I seem to remember hearing somewhere he had a he had a nickname of the Professor or something along those lines as mm. in his engineering work. Um, I know that when they when when they were um, in pre-production on the tripods they were looking for someone who could give it they didn't want the radiophonic workshop they mm. wanted someone who could give it a very much a different sort of audio identity to mm-hmm. uh, to doctor who or any of the other you know bbc sci-fi shows at the time and well they must have settled on ken freeman at some point and yeah he, he his score is fantastic yeah it, it, it 
yeah, it's of its time, and it is a is a synth soundtrack, something that will fall very mm. out of favour uh, in the decade after. But um, it's for anyone who loves electronic music, you, they really mm. should seek out the Tripod soundtrack because it is absolutely superb as a work of of, of, of synthesizer instrumental instrumentation. Mm. Um, it's well worth what, what? it's on Spotify. Yeah. While saying, yeah, exactly. While saying that it is very much a product of its time, and it did fall out of favour in the nineties. That kind of music, I think, it's back in vogue more now. I think, it's yeah, the, the mm. sort of synth wave movement has 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 made uh, synthesizers um, sort of cool again. Mm. <laughs> Almost mm. makes the tripods feel contemporary, and so mm. I think that's one of the sort of key uh, key headlines really from this discussion is that. Uh, the tripods have still got a lot to say, and it's still got a lot to say to current audiences. So I would recommend it, if you've not seen it, to go out there and watch it, because it is really enjoyable, not just as a sci-fi, but the messages that it's got. And, of course, any uh, if anyone got the, the more recent DVD release, there is a... Ken Freeman basically does a sort of... Um, a, a, a recently recorded um, Im- imaginary score for Series 3. And oh. okay, it's absolutely fantastic and really should be listened to. And you know, anyone who who already loves the um, uh, the the music he did for the tripods, it 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 builds on those themes and adds you know a bit of uh, a few more twists. And yeah, it, it, you, listening to it, you can almost imagine the scenes of what was planned mm. for season three taking place. I think it would be nice to get somebody to still do some graphic illustrations of key moments from Series 3, put the soundtrack on top of it, tell the story that way. Well, I that'd think, be, yeah, I that think sounds there great. might even be things like that on YouTube. I mean, there is oh, still a, a something of an active fan community out there. I mean, I came mm. and I stumbled across an Australian fan film recently. It was made very recently by mm. people who don't look like they would have been alive when the tripods was trans- <laughs> transmitted. So, right. you know, there, there's just people that are discovering the show still. There's still an audience for it, and there's still, yeah, there's still a role for it in modern society. Yeah. Well, actually, on that note, I think we should be with... This has been a fascinating, fascinating talk. And I was wondering if you've already given that. I, I know you were trying to do some nice summarising there, Andrew. I did notice. So I was going to come to... Um, some final thoughts to wrap, wrap this up. Uh, would you like to go first, Andrew? Uh, yeah, sure. I will uh, just say that uh, I think the Tripod is a really, really, uh, not just an entertaining series, I think it's an important series. It's an essential part of British sci-fi canon. It's often forgotten today, uh, largely not because people don't like it, but because it has just it's just been forgotten. So I think it's mm. worthy of remembering it, and I think it's worthy of reading the book. It's worthy of watching the TV series. And uh, you know, it's 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 really really uh, an important series because I think it, as we've touched on today, it does talk about some very high concepts of science fiction. It looks at some major society issues. It looks at the patriarchy. Uh, it looks at elements of sexism. And in the second series, almost begins to touch on issues of homophobia, which are issues that we still talk about today. So I think it does still have a voice. It still does have a place. Uh, so, yeah, if you've not seen it, if you're a younger sci-fi fan and you're just listening to this because of curiosity to find out what is this Tripods thing, I would say this Tripods thing is really, really entertaining, really important, and it is a good series for you to go and watch sort of now. So <laughs> enjoy the DVD. It's available on Amazon, I expect. If you have in your head uh, a sort of preconceived notion of what an 80s uh, sci-fi from the Beeb looks like, 
then the tripod is definitely something you should uh, have a look at. I mean, for its time, it is definitely a cut above the average in how it looks, how it feels. I mean, there is definitely quite the the expensive sheen to this show that you may not have seen on, say, something like Doctor Who or Blake 7 of a similar period. Um, just the, the sheer variety of costumes, of... Of, of 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 set pieces of, of of locations. I mean, the, the series travels all around Europe. I mean, there is actually some genuine foreign filming. It's not all just uh, slate quarries in Wales. Um, <laughs> and also, the tripods themselves, when they do appear, are often spectacular and uh, make for some extremely memorable sequences. It is not the fastest paced show. That is something I've got to stress. It is not all action. There is some action in it, and it does actually get quite exciting at times. But you will have to deal with um, long sequences of people singing while making wine. Uh, (laughs) You will have to deal with people um, uh, chatting about local politics at a dinner party. Uh, I'm afraid that, uh, yes, there there are definitely legitimate criticisms of it being Mm -hmm. slow, mostly in the first season. Once you're in the second season, though, it really picks up the pace and it and it really goes for it. And uh, anyone who comes away from the second season having not enjoyed it, I think it must be crazy. Mm. I would say that, I, just to add an extra point before handing back to Gareth, if that's okay, I would say that because of those reasons, mm-hmm. uh, as I said earlier on in the uh, podcast today, don't binge watch it. It's not <laughs> a series that lends itself well to binge watching. It, it's... Uh, a couple at a time is probably yeah the uh, the best. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 well, I was just going to kind of agree, agree with you. I think at, at its best, I think so. And some of its episodes of the tripod are as good as anything the BBC produces in in the eighties. At its at its best, it is a really good series, mm-hmm. and definitely it's like a lot of epic stories. It is a story of ebbs and flows in a way, and you've got to go through those slower, more pastoral bits to appreciate the... It is very beautiful. One thing we've not addressed at all, of course, is the obvious thing about the tripods. It wasn't finished. (laughs) Yes, we have. I think we have touched on that. We slightly skirted over it, and we have... Uh, We have sort of uh, touched on that uh, bit of information (laughs) as we've talked about other things. But uh, yeah, it was very, very cruelly and very unfairly not returned for a third series, especially when it ends on a cliffhanger which sort of demands another series. It would be a bit like ending Star Trek The Next Generation at the end of season three, where Picard's <laughs> basically been turned into a bog, and then let's just leave it there. Well, uh, could, maybe there's something then to be said. Tripods, possibly one of the very few shows in history where the bad guys totally win. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe Blake's heaven as well, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, it's still worth watching despite that. I know the, a series that stops there might you might it might put some people off. You know, you wouldn't even <laughs> go near a series that just sort of never even gets a chance to finish telling its story. But even so, I think the first series and the second series tell enough of the story uh, to to be worth watching. I think. Well, the great thing That's is it. there is the books. And you can go back to the to the third book, and you know, even if you've not read books one and two, you can piece together what's going on because although although they do follow different narratives, you know, it, I don't think what they were planning would have been all that different. 
No, and it won't take you long to read. No, no, not at all. So you can find out how it ends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been great. Thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Andrew and Kevin for taking the time out to talk about the tripods again. And thank you very much to you for listening. And I'll look forward to us all being together again soon. So bye-bye for now. Music by Chattery Art. You can find out more about the podcast and leave comments at its Twitter account, at FuturesVery. Or visit my blog at garethpreston.blog for more reviews and news. Very British Futures is produced by Gareth Preston.